Online communities, classroom culture, and personal relationships have something in common. Whether it's forming a strong emotional bond, feeling included and accepted, or having an attachment to others, feeling like we belong makes us happy. Ever wonder why? Join me, Dr. Eileen Winokur, for my bi-weekly podcast, Journeys to Belonging, as I discuss my personal and professional experiences with belonging and interview educators and others as they share their stories of belonging. At the end of every episode, I'll offer advice about how we can all feel like we belong. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Journeys to Belonging. In today's episode, I don't have any special guests, uh, and I want to begin explaining why belonging is so important and what I'm finding out from the latest research that affects students and teachers and all of us, but especially focusing on education. So join me today as I talk about some basic information about belonging, why and how it's related to achievement. And then with this episode and other future episodes, we'll, I will also share my ideas, my, the research that I'm finding, and how that connects to educators around the world and how it will affect uh, your students. So in today's episode, the first thing I want to talk about is why belonging? Why is belonging so important to me? Why should it be so important to everyone, but especially to teachers? If we don't feel we belong, it means we don't feel we're in a safe space. And if we don't feel we're in a safe space or place, we, our reaction will be fight or flight or dissociation. So our parasympathetic nerve system will react in a negative way. And for students, that means they will be checking around to see if what they're doing is okay. They'll be wondering if because they're the only black person or English learner or other in the classroom, whether they will be noticed in a negative way by the teacher, by others, uh, perhaps that students been bullied or been teased in the past. And so they're gonna be on the lookout for danger. They're gonna be at look on the lookout for are they in a safe space? And so belonging is extremely important because a student cannot achieve if he or she or they are not in a safe space. In a little while, I will talk a little bit about uh, how teachers can ensure uh, or help that student feel better about their space and their place in your classroom. But for right now, I'm sort of staying with the general. I've seen a lot of posters and a lot of a lot written about Maslow before boom. It's not anything new. 
And of course, we're all aware of the fact that Maslow, Abraham Maslow, uh, put together uh, the hierarchy of needs uh, back in the 1930s, and it's been used in uh, teacher education and psychology for many, many, many years. The thing with Maslow is he begins with the very basic needs of our body, our physiological needs. And then uh, there, are, there is another step before belonging. However, uh, and I'll be writing about this in my blog, belonging is really uh, part and parcel of all the things in the first three tiers of Maslow's hierarchy. And I'm speaking in terms of the science, in terms of how our nervous system reacts to situations around us, things that happen in our lives, and uh, to our emotions. And so it's really, really important that we think about belonging as the whole idea of I've already been fed, I have a safe place to be, whether it's in the classroom or my home, and uh, I have the clothing that I need, so I have all of my basic needs. They might not be 100% sufficient, but I'm not sitting and worrying about whether I have going to have shoes on my feet or um, a, a, a place to go home to, uh, somebody to go home to, even if I don't have a place to go home to or that I'm in a safe space in school. And so belonging actually is self-belonging. So when I talk about belonging, I'm talking about self-belonging. And because I believe that there is, and this psychologists, uh, the research also supports that if you're not uh, okay, with uh, being on your own uh, and not feeling lonely, with uh, being able to find things to do, uh, not to feel depressed because you're alone, and the fact that you are self-confident, self-aware, you can self-regulate, uh, and perhaps not in every single situation, we're not perfect, but overall that you're in a calm and balanced place. And so that self-belonging is really the first rung of, or should be the first rung, rather than the three tiers that Maslow has. So I would say it should be belonging before Bloom and not Maslow before Bloom. Uh, another thing about Maslow, and I blogged about it this week, so if you want to read about it a little bit more, you can check out my blog. Maslow uh, seems, uh, from his biographer and also from research done around that time, borrowed heavily from the Blackfoot tribe, uh, who had a teepee, uh, and therefore probably the idea of the triangle, uh, his triangle, uh, for his model of hierarchy. And they started with self-actualization the Blackfoot tribe. And so do many of the ancient traditions, uh, ancient religions. And uh, we really uh, 
do have to look at the science now that supports the idea of self-actualization as a motivating factor for everything else in our lives. So if we don't have that self-actualization, we, we don't have the motivation to begin with. If we don't have the belonging, we don't have the motivation and we don't have the safe space to be able to function without worrying about what's happening around us or what might happen or what we anticipate may happen. And so I think that Maslow's hierarchy, which has you working toward self-actualization as a way to motivate yourself, is, uh, should be turned upside down. And so uh, I will also be uh, including a graphic of what I think that um, it really isn't a triangle and it isn't necessarily a hierarchy. Uh, of, but I believe that we need to be, uh, begin with self-belonging. And so I will repeat over and over again, belonging before Bloom, not Maslow before Bloom. Essentially, I think when people say, when teachers say Maslow before Bloom, uh, their good intention is to underline the fact that we need to make sure the social and emotional well-being of ourselves and our students are taken care of. And so the idea is there to begin with. So I'm not debating the fact that everybody really believes in the fact that we need to care about our students and we need to, and, and we're worried about their well-being. Uh, but the fact that the way that Maslow looks at it is, is probably skewed. And I know that his field was motivational psychology, and so at the time, perhaps he believed this was motivational for us. But it also emphasizes the individual as the ultimate. And as we know from belonging, relationships, community, and all of that are the foundation of belonging. And so the other day, I came across some research on a website called Mindset Scholars Network. And it's, it's really an interesting uh, uh, set of research. They've actually been doing research for a while. Uh, they're highly noted researchers uh, from Stanford and other highly rated uh, educational universities. Uh, and what they've been studying is the idea of belonging and how teachers can learn to uh, be able to give the type of feedback and signals to students to ensure that they feel they belong. And so uh, I actually watched a, a video of um, a panel uh, and Dr. Gregory Walton of Stanford uh, spoke about the fact that we really need to understand that belonging is the foundation for learning. So during the, the interview process of the panel members, one of the things that stuck in my mind was uh, Greg, Dr. Walton's statement, belonging is the foundation for learning. Now why does, why does he say that? Um, because Again, as I mentioned at the beginning, and why I'm so interested in belonging, is that if a student walks into my classroom and is already uneasy about 
whether they should be in that classroom, whether they're capable of managing the work that's going to be presented to them, whether they've already been told either by other teachers in previous years or by perhaps their family members, uh, perhaps by other by their peers, uh, perhaps their perception of their, themselves that they they aren't really they're sort of imposters. They're they're really not capable of managing the situation. Uh, perhaps they've come in and they've never really gotten good grades in certain subjects. Um, they give an example during the panel of of women and how women are here over and over again that um, they're not capable in science and math fields, which we know is not true, but we hear it all the time. And so for women to overcome that uh, is very difficult, especially as they get older. And so if a, a, a student is walking into a high school geometry class, uh, a female student, and she's already believes the speak about the fact that she's not going to be able to accomplish, if she doesn't hear differently from her peers and especially from her teacher, she's going to continue to believe that she's not capable. And as long as we believe that we're not capable, obviously we are not going to achieve. Um, so what, what can teachers do? I'm going to get into this in, in further episodes and in my blog, but I really want to go into the fact that teachers do have a role to play and can help students in the classroom by the way they respond to students, how they respond to students, with the feedback that they give students and the reactions that they give them when students appear to be struggling. So on today's episode, what I'd like to do is give two examples of the ways that teachers can react in order to um, help their students feel uh, better at being and belonging in the classroom. So students often come into your classroom and are sitting in the class and wondering, can I succeed? It doesn't matter, it may be in a particular subject, it may be just in general, but the student is sitting there unsure for younger students, many times their uh, reactions are stomach aches uh, or random crying or crying about things that we normally wouldn't see them crying about. For older students, it could be that um, they, they seem very distracted. Uh, they may act out in class in order to avoid doing the work. They may make excuses for not doing the work. And so the student isn't necessarily lazy, so we shouldn't jump to the conclusion that the student just doesn't want to do the work. The teacher needs to be able to pull out from the student exactly what's going on. But teachers need to establish relationships of trust with each student before the student will open up about what's bothering them. Many times they will either make excuses or sort of tell stories about what's bothering them, but it's not really the root of their problem. Because perhaps they've tried to share it 
with someone in the past and nothing has come of it. And so perhaps they're thinking to themselves, well, if I share it, you know, what's, what's the use? They're not going to do anything to help me anyway. So it's very important from day one to establish those relationships and to establish that trust. The student needs to hear from their teacher that I care about you. I care about you as an individual. I care, I want you to succeed. And not only am I saying it, but everything that I am doing in the class for that student, I am giving the signal to that student. You can trust me and I'm doing this for you because I believe in you. I believe that you can do it. And I'm going to give you the tools and the support to do it. And you need to show me by trying. It's something that I used to tell my students. If I see you're trying, I'm going to try 150% to help you and support you. But if I see that you're not really trying, that you're giving me excuses and then going back to not really doing the work, um, we'll continue to have conversations, but I may not put in the effort because I'm not sure that you're really appreciating the effort that I'm putting in. Again, there's a dialogue that goes back and forth between myself and the student. And it's ongoing, and sometimes it takes a couple of months to sort of break through that armor that especially older students have acquired because they've been hurt or they've been, um, they've, they've been, they've been trusting and uh, in the end, uh, the, you know, whoever it was, the authority figure, whether it was a teacher, a parent, or somebody, didn't follow through. And so they're sort of testing the water. So we have to be a bit patient. The other example I'd like to give is, uh, in, for instance, in a writing sample. Let's say the student, and it could be any age. It could be elementary age. It could be middle school, high school, or college and the student has submitted a writing assignment. Uh, for whatever you've decided the writing assignment is um, going to be graded on or judged on, um, whether it's grammar, whether it's content, whether it's a mix of things, and you write your comments, hopefully not in red ink, you write your comments and return it to the student. Now, if the student receives it with just the critical feedback, and put yourself in that student's place. If the student just receives the critical feedback, you need to do this, I saw this, this was good, but I, I see that you know your, your subject verb agreement or uh, your use of certain words or your spelling is a problem, and it's just handed back to them that way. The student is just going to sit there and what he or she or they read is, well, this reinforces the fact that I just can't write. I'm not successful at writing. I don't like to write. Uh, it was really difficult for me to put this on paper. And now all I get is mostly negative feedback. On the other hand, if the paper was handed back with either a verbal or something written on the paper, to the student that says, from the teacher, 
look, I understand it seemed like you struggled with either your spelling or your grammar or the content or the whole concept of this paper, or your paper was rather skimpy, it didn't really respond to the prompt, it didn't fulfill the, the, the things that I, I had given you or, or told you on the rubrics, but you know what? I know you can do this. I believe you can do this. In this place, I saw some sunlight, some positive uh, phrasing, something, pull out something to give that student something to go on. Because if I get that paper back and I'm asked to revise it, but all I get is the critical feedback, I am going to be less likely to work on it, especially if I already have this negative speak within me about, I can't succeed at this writing. Same goes for a math test. Uh, when I used to have uh, students um, complete a math test or any kind of test for that matter, we would always go over the answers. And if I felt that in class, the student was doing quite well and should have gotten a certain answer correct, uh, responded in a different way, I normally will set a time, aside time to speak to that student to find out what is it that prevented him, her, or them from answering the question correctly because, and I would say to them, I'm sure that you know this because I've seen you answer this in class. Many times the response that I would get was, uh, I was really nervous. Um, I was so nervous that I didn't sleep well last night or the night before I took the test. And so I was really tired. I had trouble concentrating. I studied and I know I felt like I know, knew it, but when I started answering the questions while I was studying, I didn't know it. And so those kinds of conversations are fantastic because it gave me an, uh, an, um, a, wave to, a way to talk to them about, well, perhaps we need to think in terms of what things you've succeeded at, uh, the things that you knew in class. I would remind them of the things that they answered correctly. Um, I would pump them up, but not pump them up uh, without actual examples. Because students know when we're just trying to tell them to praise them and to tell them, oh, you know, you, you do a good job in class. Well, if I'm sitting there as a student and I know I'm not doing well in class, or I'm already feeling that I'm not doing well in class, then just saying to me, you're doing okay, is probably not going to convince me. So those are just a couple of points that I've experienced in my own classrooms and that the science shows uh, really matters. And again, the article that uh, I read uh, was a research done with uh, Mindset Scholars Network. And I will uh, make sure in the show notes today to uh, provide the link so that you're able to find the research. In episodes coming up, I will have other guests, but I will also intersperse some of my own thinking and examples about belonging. And be sure to also catch my blog because on a weekly basis, I will be blogging 
about belonging and in more detail some of the scientific findings and the kinds of things that teachers can do uh, step by step uh, to try to provide the environment of belonging in your classroom. And then also, we need to feel like we belong uh, as teachers, as educators, as professionals. And so I'll be talking a bit about that over the next number of episodes also. It's going to be pretty busy, and so be sure to stay tuned. Thank you for joining me today, and I look forward to speaking with you in the next episode of Journeys to Belonging. Be sure to subscribe to my podcast, Journeys to Belonging. Um, And the next episode will be out in two weeks. In the meantime, you can connect with me on Twitter at Eileen Winokur, I-L-E-N-E-W-I-N-O-K-U-R, or on Instagram at Eileen underscore W. And you can also find my blog uh, at the website, https colon forward slash forward slash cultures dot build see you in two weeks